0: guys, this is Pastor Justin Bowers, and you're listening to the New Community Podcast. Uh, we're thrilled that you're listening today, and we hope that this is a great experience for you. I wanted to let you know that you can support the work of New Community and all that God is doing down here in West Virginia by going to New Community WV and then clicking on the Give tab uh, we would love to have your support, and we would be excited that you would journey with us in all that God has called us to—to to be a people finding and following Jesus beyond Sundays. Enjoy the podcast. Okay, so we're going to jump in today. Last last week, many of you know I was away again. Some of you emphasize again because you're like, "Was he ever work?" Um, sharing with about 150 Latino pastors. In a very difficult place. I I felt like I had to do some missionary work. I know last time I was gone, I told you I had to relax in Northern California. Well, last weekend, I had to be a missionary in Southern California, and it was just miserably sunny, and, you know, just thank you for praying, Um, and, and I don't say that to rub it in. I say that to let you know I would love to have spent time out in the sunshine, but actually, Carrie and I got about 10 minutes outside. The rest of the time, we were engaged in this just incredible time of learning with these Latino pastors. I spoke Uh, through a translator seven times in three days. So by the end of that, I was tired of hearing my own voice. I didn't think I had anything left that was important to say, but it was a lot of fun and it was an honor to be with so many amazing uh, pastors and leaders of different cultures. And probably the coolest thing was that last Sunday I got to preach in a church um, that was just unlike anything I'd ever experienced. I'll tell you a little bit more about this church, a story from this church later, but the church was right in the middle of what the folks from Los Angeles call the valley. And if you drive through this area, you will undoubtedly start singing one of the, like, hundreds of songs that are inspired by the street names in this area. You just start recognizing stuff. So I, I thought just for fun I would quiz you guys a little bit and see how much you know about California street names based on the music you listen to. Are you ready? So I'm going to give you a lyric, and you fill it in with the street name, okay? Until the sun comes up over. Well done. You are way far ahead of the first service. This one's a little bit tricky. All the vampires living in Reseda. Well done. Move west down Ventura Boulevard. Yes. And then there's one welcome to the hotel. Yeah. So you guys listen to too much non-Christian music. That's what we've concluded here today. Um, it is an inspiring place, right? I, I would never live there because there's way too many people and way too much traffic for me. They call it a city and it's like a, like just sprawling. But, but it is beautiful. On one side, you've got these lush Mountains with rock formations kind of coming up out of them. And then on the other, you have this just sprawling city. And about 30 minutes away, you have places like the Santa Monica Pier and Malibu and the beach and, and, and tacos. Like, you just wouldn't, could we just talk about the tacos for a minute? Now, the thing is, in the middle of all this, this, this place is as diverse of a culture as you will ever find. And so I got to speak in my friend Pastor Abraham's church and he is drawn from this population in incredible ways on on a typical Sunday morning they host three worship services and so they have a service that's conducted in English for the Anglo population then they have a service that's conducted in Spanish and then they have a service conducted in Portuguese and, and, and I was like, man, which service am I preaching at? The English one? Like, that's what I was like, the English one, you're going to put me in the English one? And he goes, no, once a month we unify and we have a trilingual worship service. Can I just tell you it was the most beautiful chaos I've ever experienced? Because the worship leaders, he goes, our worship leaders speak three languages what have you done with your life? That's my question. And as they're leading worship, the slides are coming up and, and you'll be singing No Longer Slaves in English. And then the next slide, it jumps to Spanish. And the third slide, it jumps to Portuguese. And I'm going, this is crazy. Like, how do they how do they go into this? And so I'm preaching and the translator is there speaking and every sentence I pause and he's translating into Spanish. and And what happens is at the end of the service, I'm thinking, like they typically do this in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. How did the Portuguese people grab onto this? And this woman comes up to me and she says, my English, no good. <laughs> I was like, you should probably speak four languages, so you're smarter than me already. And she goes, but, she said, I speak Portuguese. Praise God, I understood every word you said today. And I was like, it's because I'm from West Virginia, and I have really good English. <laughs> no, it's because God did something. It was, it was a really special time. Um, we, we have been here in this church in a series for the past several weeks that we've called The Comeback. And we've been talking very honestly about what it means to come back from the things that knock us down, the things that knock us out. And, and I've told you that, that often in life, and, and really for the for the past few weeks, we've been talking about this, this first type of comeback that we need. And that's the comeback that, that comes from the pitfalls, right? That all of us fall into things, that all of us have moral failure. We take small baby steps into sin, and oftentimes that sin creates a descent where we find ourselves in a place of catastrophe going, how did I get here, right, like how did I end up in this place, and many of us have been there, and and we understand that, And, and last week, I know Josh preached an incredible message, I hope you were here, because Josh preached an incredible message talking about the first step of a comeback out of those pitfalls, that it begins with repentance, with this idea of actually owning up and fessing up and saying, no, I've blown it, this is where I am, and I need to get out of this. And that's one type of comeback we need. We need the comeback from our own pitfalls. But there's another type of comeback that I think is really important. And that's what I wanna talk about today. And this this is the comeback that comes from the punch outs. That some of us have pitfalls, some of us have failures. We are in a position where it's the consequence of our own bad decisions. But others of us have punch outs. Anybody remember the old game, Mike Tyson's Punch Out? Anybody played that game? Like if you're my age, this is participatory. Raise your hand if you remember. Okay. So some of you are like the nice yeah. This is all you're worth today. Okay, so Mike Tyson's Punch-Out was this incredible video game where you were this kind of tiny little white guy fighter trying to make your way up through the ranks, taking out all these boxers. And, and every boxer had a different approach that you fought. Every one of them fought differently. Like, just about the time you would figure something out of how to beat one, the other one would step in and knock you down. And, and I thought, like, I would get so frustrated because these controllers, kids, these, these were the ancient days, like, just after chisels and stones. These video game controllers only had two buttons, right? And I remember this week thinking, like, I remember throwing that controller so many times because I was so mad that I couldn't beat whoever the, the, the boxer. I, like, I'm sure you, some of you remember the names. Who were the names of the boxers? Okay, you don't remember. Okay, well done. But you would try to get to Mike Tyson, and he was basically unbeatable. But the thing was, you had to try to figure out each fighter to get to the championship. Some of us, I think, today feel like that's how life is, right? Like we feel like that's how life works. Some of us aren't so worried about coming back from the pitfalls. We think, well, yeah, I know I screw up my life, but really what's attacking me is the punch-outs. Life, it just keeps hitting me. And every time I think I've got life figured out, something else happens that knocks me down, and I don't know how to get up from it. Like sometimes it isn't your fault that you lost the job. Or sometimes you walked into a doctor's office expecting a checkup, and you walk out with a diagnosis, and it's terrifying. It isn't our own doing that caused us to maybe lose someone we love, or we didn't see the end of the relationship coming. It just came out of nowhere. And when we get that moment, those moments in life, that punch-out moment, it hurts, and it's not easy to come back from. In this series, we've been looking at this story of King David's life. We've been looking at what it it meant for David to step into his own pitfall, to to, to journey into this moral failure where he, he assaults Bathsheba and he causes the death of Bathsheba's husband and then Bathsheba gets pregnant. And we find that David was this, really if Israel were to talk about their king, they would talk about David. David was historic, he was epic, he was a man who started as a shepherd and became a giant slayer. And yet in these couple chapters we've been looking at, we see his failure. And we've held that intention because the scripture tells us what? It tells us David was a man after God's own heart. We've kind of been asking if he could come back from his failure, if he could come back from everything that went wrong, how could he become this man after God's own heart? And what we found is in these darkest parts of life that we're starting to get a picture of what a comeback looks like. I know Josh shared with you last week about the prophet Nathan coming to David and and really confronting his sin, right? And we learn that sometimes we need true friends to tell us the type of idiots we are. Amen? Some of you are not participating today, and you're not going to get a gold star. And where I want to pick up today is right after Nathan has come to David. I want to pick up after the prophet has come to David, and he said to David this whole parable, and David is realizing the weight of his sin. Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Here's what David's response is. It says, then David said to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Now, just just pause there because it's one sentence. That's all David utters. And Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, here's the thing for me when I read this. I want to pause here and I want to say this. Doesn't it seem a little abrupt? Like we've had a chapter and a half to get the depth of David's sin. Like we found out that he should have been at war and he wasn't. He was staying home. He was out on the roof of his palace. He saw Bathsheba. He decided he wanted Bathsheba. He decided to assault Bathsheba. She gets pregnant. David tries to cover it up, has her husband killed, ends up losing others. So We get this whole long story. And after the prophet confronts David, David simply goes, sinned against the Lord. Like just one sentence. And I feel that and I hate it at the same time. How did I get here? It's my own fault. Like I dug the hole with the shovel that was in my hand and then I jumped in the hole. But the story doesn't end there. Because sometimes you need to work your way honestly out of the pitfall, like David messing up with Bathsheba. But sometimes just when you think you're out of your own pitfall, it just feels like life keeps attacking with that punch out. Look at verse 14, where this story keeps going as Nathan keeps speaking to David. But because by doing this, You've shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, now watch this, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted, and he spent the nights lying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his attendants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Now, the setting of this part of this story is a punch-out. David has dealt with his pitfall, right? He's dealt with his sin. He has said, I've sinned against the Lord. But then life keeps coming. And I wanna pause here because I wanna say to you, if you read this part of this story and you're not a little bit bothered by it, you're not a little bit disturbed by it, then I wanna challenge you to say you need to soak in the scripture more because we are told in this passage something very striking. We are told that the Lord struck the child, that he told David, the child that you had, is going to die. Now, doesn't this seem so unfair? This is one of those parts of scripture that as a pastor, I'm like, I wish that wasn't there, God. like, I'm doing my best to promote you, but I just kind of wish this part wasn't there because it seems unjust. This is that famous question that so many of you have asked, so many of your friends have asked, why do innocent people suffer? Why do children have to die? Theologians would call this the question of something they call theodicy. Right? It's a big word that simply means, how can God be good when evil is so overwhelming and suffering is so prevalent? And God seems to do nothing. Now, if you look this up on Amazon, if you go on Google, you're going to find thousands of books written in attempts to answer these very questions. Even I looked this week just about David and Bathsheba's child who dies over the course of a week. Many, many books have been composed. You can find theological answers. But here's what I find, and I looked up a bunch of the options. Like, what are the answers? How how do we deal with this? The the, the answers are not very good. Like, some I read said, well, David violated God's law, and there had to be punishment. So God punished him by, by allowing the child to die. Okay, somebody else said, if the child had lived, he would have been an illegitimate child, and he would have been raised with questionable reputation. He would have suffered more. So God actually was sparing this child. I don't like that explanation. One would go so far as to say that because David's lineage was supposed to be the lineage of Jesus, God had to allow the child to die, so the restoration of Jesus' lineage, just super complex. Like, I feel like you're fishing there. And the problem is this, right? You can make attempts, and, and you can make explanations, but as one writer says, explanations are fine, but we still have a dead baby to bury. That's the reality of this story. And it's super difficult. Because I think it says something to us. When punch-outs happen in our life, when moments like this come and they hurt badly, it's hard to keep trusting something called God's mercy and God's compassion when he doesn't seem very merciful and he doesn't seem very compassionate. I would say this. The thousands of pages written trying to synthesize these ideas of innocent suffering and the goodness of God cannot and will not find the perfect answer, and that's because there are none. It's one of those incredibly frustrating moments where we realize exactly what C.S. Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, God doesn't function as a positive thinking therapist while he's performing surgery drilling on your teeth. See, God is, and, and, and this is hard to understand, but it is, God is other than us. He doesn't function as we function. He doesn't exist as we exist, and so to some extent, there is no easy resolution, but I will say this, and I believe this matters in this story, How quickly are we ready to accuse God of not being good, and we're so quick to forget how evil David has been? Right, We are so quick to move out of the darkness of David's sin and into questioning the goodness of God. If anything, in these two chapters that we've been studying, chapter 11, chapter 12, they paint for us a picture of the viral nature of sin. And the brokenness that exists in our world, there is an epidemic problem in our world. And we find in the deep corruption of David's heart, the also deep corruption of the entire created world. David finds himself, listen, he finds himself heaped on the ground, fasting, praying, pleading with God. God, do anything, but please don't cause the death of this child. He's doing the same thing, listen, he's doing the same thing that the Apostle Paul says all of creation does. See, Paul says all of creation groans. Have you ever known anyone with chronic pain that just doesn't go away? You ever sat and listened to the sounds that someone who's dying makes? There's nothing like it there's nothing that painful and paul says that's what creation is doing because of the brokenness in our world and frankly at these points when we're heaped on the ground because of the suffering that we're walking through it doesn't matter whether god caused it allowed it or what the intellectual answers are it just simply hurts our world is groaning and there are consequences to the nature of sin there's a brokenness to our world brokenness results in brokenness. And I want to say this to you today. As we move forward, this is the last. I told you at the beginning of this series, these first few weeks are going to be hard. They're going to be heavy. This is the last of those. We start to get to really good news next week. So if you haven't liked this, come back next week. It's going to be really exciting. But I would say this. We had to go through this. We had to walk through this story of David because this is where comebacks start. And the things I want to share with you today, I just want to give you three truths about how we come back from a punch out, things that are true in those situations. And, and, and I will say this, I, I preface all that to say, the first truth, you're not gonna like it. <laughs> The first truth for those of you who are walking through a punch out, who feel like you've been knocked down, this is gonna sting a little bit. It's so not gonna be fully understood. But for those that I've met who have seen a comeback story written in their life, who have found redemption and hope and grace in the midst of pain, they know this to be true. They have experienced this firsthand, and they have embraced this truth as a starting point for deeper intimacy with God. Here's the first truth God doesn't owe us an explanation for the knockdowns in our life. This is something we have to hold on to, we have to grab onto, and it's not something, if you're in a knockdown moment, you probably are gonna have a tough time believing this right now, and I wanna say to you, that's okay, he's not scared of your wrestling. He's not scared of your questions. He's not afraid of your anger, but he does not owe you an explanation. I don't like saying that to you. I don't like putting that on the screen, but it's real. It's biblical. When you read the Bible front to back, you will never find the God who created the universe going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I need to explain myself here. Yeah, I need to kind of just slow down. I I know this is hard for you to understand. Like I I allowed Jesus to die on the cross, but let me just slow down and help you. understand. He doesn't do that. See, there's this story, the whole book of Job, 42 chapters long, tells the story of a man who suffers in in ways that we have never imagined. He loses his, his family, he loses his possessions, he loses his health, he loses everything. And he's sitting, it says, in ashes with boils all over his body, suffering. He's wrecked and he questions God. He calls Yahweh out. He says, God, why don't you just kill me and get this over with? 37 chapters, it's excruciating, it's a hard book. And in the 38th chapter, God finally answers Job. And you know how God answers Job's questions? Watch this, verse verse one of chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. And he said, ready, ready for God's grace? Who is this that obscures my knowledge with, or obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Now watch, brace yourself like a man. This is not very politically correct. (laughs) Like, listen up, Job. Job. I'm going to question you, and you shall answer me. I think God's saying, I have listened to you question me for 37 chapters. And now I will not owe you an explanation, but I have some questions for you. And I want to say to you again, this doesn't help. If you're suffering right now, this is not easy to hear, but it is the word of God. For Job's questions in the knockdown moments, God doesn't answer them, but he asks questions in return. Notice in our story today, David doesn't sit around asking God questions. He doesn't hear that the child's going to die and then go, well, God, can we have an intellectual disc- discourse on this? Can I bring the books that I've read to you? God, can I can I Wikipedia this? Can I Wikipedia suffering and just explain to you why this doesn't make sense? And God, can you answer? He doesn't do that. He pleads with God. He believes God might change his mind. He prays to God, he he fasts, he lays himself out before God, but he doesn't put God on trial. And I believe, by the way, this is why David was a man after God's own heart, because he had a soil in his heart that allowed for a comeback, because David knew, God doesn't owe me an explanation. God gets to be God, I don't get to be God. If you're suffering, if you've suffered, if you've been punched out and you hear what I'm saying to you right now as something that stings, listen, I get it. And I will meet you right here when we begin to sing at the end of the service and I will pray with you and others will gather around you and we will pray with you and we will enter into your suffering with you, your grief, your sorrow, your wreckage because I know my words and this truth may not help right now. But one day on the other side of your comeback, you're gonna look back and you're gonna go, Yeah, God never owed me an explanation. And praise God, God never tried to give me an explanation. He just offered grace, and he got me through it. There's a second truth. So God doesn't owe us an explanation. As hard as that is, there's also a second truth that I think begins to permeate us with a little bit more grace. When life knocks us down, this is where we start to find grace. See, watch this. Here's the second truth. Beauty is more beautiful in the midst of brokenness. When you see beauty in the midst of brokenness, you start to appreciate the beauty more than when things aren't broken. Let me give you an example of this, and I think I've talked about this before. In in the Japanese culture, there's this art form called kintsugi. Anybody ever heard of Kintsugi? Kintsugi is this beautiful art form where the artist takes these, these brilliant clay pots and ceramic pots and things that have been shattered, have been broken, and they piece them back together. And when they piece them back together, they forge them together with liquid gold, with liquid metals that are just make them more brilliant than they had ever been. It's an amazing art form that not only makes the piece of art stronger, makes it more beautiful. But it, it multiplies the value in unspeakable ways. Friends, this is brokenness in our lives. This is what brokenness looks like in our lives, that God takes our brokenness and he finds. When we see the beauty of the brokenness, when we find grace in the middle of our brokenness, we go, oh my gosh, that's so beautiful. And it's things that I never noticed before. Anybody remember going to the eye doctor and getting your eyes dilated? Yeah, I know. That's how I feel. I used to lie about it. Like I would go to the eye doctor. When I started driving, I was like, I got to drive today. I can't get my eyes dilated. Sorry. And they were like, well, your mom's in the waiting room. No, no, she she can't drive. She's she's not going to happen. I would just make up whatever I could because I hated it so much. They'd give you those stupid looking sunglasses and I'd never wear them. And then my eyes just hurt because everything was so sensitive. Here's the thing. That's pain, right? That's brokenness. When we're walking through these places where life has knocked us down, our eyes of our heart are more open than ever before and we're going, man, everything hurts. Everything scares me. Everything makes me angry. Everything feels so heightened. And yet in the middle of that, you also may be more aware, more in tune, more dilated in the way that you begin to see beauty. And I want you to start seeing the beauty. See, don't miss this. David, a man who just one chapter earlier fell into the darkest decisions of his life because of his own pride, because of his own loneliness and isolation, because of his own boredom. Just one chapter earlier, he is now here surrounded in his deepest moments of pain by friends who love him, who will hold him up when he needs it. This is David's kintsugi moment. It's the beauty of brokenness. It's the moment where, in spite of ourselves, we see grace in the cracks. And, friends, I have to tell you this. As a pastor, I have been invited into people's darkest moments. I've experienced the pain of others and walked beside them and seen others walk beside them. And I know you're going to be like, this is weird. It sounds morbid. But every time someone is in that place, someone gets knocked down, I will tell you the truth of this. There is more beauty in those broken places than I have ever seen before. And your comeback, the beginning of your comeback story will start when your eyes of your heart get so tuned in that you say, yeah, it hurts like hell. But the comeback is starting because I'm starting to see beauty. There's starting to be beauty here. It starts when you recognize in spite of what you've lost, in the midst of what's broken your heart, in the middle of your wreckage and pain, your fear and your rage, that it starts, the comeback starts when you zero in on the beauty that remains. When you go, man, I had no idea I had friends like this. Life hurts so bad right now, but I had no idea I had friends who cared this deeply to hold me up. I had no idea the Holy Spirit could be that intimate in my life and counsel me when I need I had no idea that I had family members who just said, I will never quit on you. I will never abandon you. I had no idea that a kind word from someone with a quiet personality could speak life to me in amazing ways. I had no idea that another frozen spaghetti dinner could mean that much. And that's where beauty starts to emerge. See, the beauty of this story for me is in the friends who surround a fallen king. The servants are afraid. They're going, what is, what is this king? He's, he's so depressed. What's going to happen if we tell him that his child is dead? But, but there's one more truth about this. Listen, the, and this, this is the thing that, that, again, propels us towards a comeback. Next week I'm going to say exactly how do we get to a comeback. Some you are like, finally, five weeks in, you're going to finally give us some things. But I want you to grab this because this is where it starts. You see, David's servants thought that David's pleading that his fasting and his praying and his refusal to get up from the ground were a sign of something. They say in the scripture, if we tell him he might do something desperate... That tells me that his elders and his servants believed that David was suicidal. They thought that he was at the end of his rope. They said, we have no idea what's going to happen because we have seen he's already given up. Now, next week, we're going to talk about what he actually did. It's amazing, but I don't want you to miss what the servants missed first. Because this paves the way for our comebacks. You see, they thought David was giving up. They thought he was quitting on life. They thought that his collapse, his physical posture of laying himself out on the ground and refusing to get up, was his giving up. They thought that he had at this point all he could take. But you know what? They didn't get it. I, I have avoided this for this whole series, but I have got to drop a Rocky illustration here, okay? You remember the Rock, the third Rocky movie? Some of you haven't seen the Rocky movies. You need to go educate yourselves to American culture, okay? I'm just just saying you need to brace yourself like a man and go watch the movie. So, Rocky Three. Rocky's enemy in this movie is Clubber Lang, played brilliantly, Oscar-worthy performance by Mr. T himself. And he fights Clubber Lang at the pinnacle of being the champ. Rocky starts the movie out. He's got everything going for him. And he goes and he fights Mr. T, and Mr. T destroys him. He destroys him. And as he's getting beat by Clubber Lang, Mr. T his trainer Rocky's trainer his faithful friend Mickey is dying in the locker room it's a it's a awful moment worst saddest moment of movie history I don't know, that's pretty drastic but it's awful And Rocky gets knocked out. He starts this comeback, though, right? And when we get to the end of the movie, we find Rocky fighting Clubber Lang again. This is a long illustration, by the way. We find him fighting Clubber Lang again, and he does this crazy thing in the middle of the fight where he actually takes his fists, and he drops them, and he starts letting Clubber Lang punch him in the face. It's this amazing moment, and it causes brain damage in part six, but it doesn't matter in part three. Now, here's the thing. He, as he drops his guard, one of his trainers in the corner looks at the other trainer and goes, he's getting killed. And the other trainer goes, no, 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 he's not getting killed. He's getting mad. And that's the moment. In Rocky's surrender, he starts to wear the enemy down. He starts to fight in a way. See, I don't think in this moment David was getting mad, but I do think as he laid himself out, surrendered, prostrate before Yahweh, repenting for his descent into moral failure and his broken life, I believe that David in his repentance and his fasting, his pleading with God, his lying in sackcloth and begging God to spare his child, I think David at this moment of surrender when every servant thought he was giving up, I think David had never fought harder for anything in his life. See, here's the final truth I want you to know about where your comeback starts. When life punches you out, fighting for a comeback starts with surrender to God's plan. If you want to fight for a comeback, you're going to have to surrender. You're going to have to drop your guard. I told you a couple weeks ago, these are hard messages. This may be the hardest thing for you to hear, but it is the turning point. We don't get to resurrection without surrender. We don't get to, ter- to a comeback without surrender. If you want to see a comeback in your life, if you want to find some sense of healing or recovery, some way to move forward from all the pain, the hurt, the hopelessness that you've been feeling, it will begin with surrender. I don't know how to make this true for you in, other w- in any other way except to say that every comeback I've ever seen, all the people that have counseled, everybody who's told me their own stories of redemption, all the times I've watched God show up in people's lives, it always starts With surrender. Some of you wouldn't say, I'm not a Christian. I've never called myself a Christian. Your comeback will start with your surrender to Jesus. That's just the truth. As we close today, I want to tell you one of these stories of comeback that I literally just heard last weekend. I told you we were in that incredible trilingual church. When we were getting ready to leave, Uh, Pastor Abraham introduced us to to this beautiful Venezuelan family. It was a man, his wife, and two just amazing, cute little girls. Abraham mentioned to me that this was the family whose story had been told in our denominational magazine. And he said, have you read it? And I said, no, I haven't read it. And I could tell they didn't speak English. And so so we kind of moved on and and kept going. When we came home, I picked the magazine up and, and I read the story. And I was absolutely fascinated. See, here's the thing. We watch the news here, and we read articles and, and stories about policies on immigration. My friends in California are actually living those stories. See, here's, here's the story of this man that I met. His name was Adriel Torado, and in late 2017, a man on a motorcycle pulled up in front of his home in a town in Venezuela, and a young girl and her mother were outside, and the man shot and killed both of them. This was the catalyst for Adriel, whom I met in that church, to take his family and say, we have to get out of our country. Because it turned out that the motorcyclist was trying to kill Adriel's wife and one of his daughters. And it was a case of mistaken identity. Because Adriel in Venezuela was not only a pastor, but he was an attorney who had been fighting for years against the corrupt government of Hugo Chavez. Seven years earlier, when Adriel loaned his car to his brother, gunmen pulled up and fired inside, killing Adriel's cousin and his brother. Adriel continued to fight the government in court, doing the best he could to honor his brother. And two years later, on a night when they were at their mother-in-law's home, his wife and daughter were attacked, beaten, and had their hair ripped out. So after this shooting in his own town, Adriel and his family flew to the capital city of Caracas in January of 2018 and then made their way on to Tijuana where they planned to cross the U.S. border because he had a friend in California named Pastor Abraham. And Pastor Abraham was going to work with him to help him enter the country. They were going to request asylum for Adriel and his family. Now, Adriel's fam- story, I think, becomes hard to hear. He was separated from his family at the border, and he was detained. His, his wife and daughters were held in spite of bringing just countless newspaper articles and papers showing, look, I've, I've prosecuted these, these officials in court, and look, this is who I am, and they're out to get me, and it, it didn't matter. They were, they were separated, and, and it would be 10 months before Adriel would ever hear or speak to his family again. Over 20 days, he was transferred across the country where he ended up, in a detention center in Georgia, sleeping in a room with 63 other men. And as he waited and waited, Pastor Abraham hired a lawyer and began to fight for Adriel and his family. He, he worked for the release of his wife, Sophia, and daughters and his daughters, who had spent 10 days in their own detention facility. And, and this wife and daughters moved in with uh, Pastor Abraham and his wife. And at this point, they had no idea. They had not spoken. They had no clue as to where Adriel was. And Adriel said that he believed he would never see his family again as he sat in the center in Georgia. But Abraham continued to fight, hiring lawyers, traveling to D.C. to meet with senators and congressmen, and even rallying members of our own denomination to write letters on behalf of Adriel. Thousands of letters began to flood. I love when the church is the church, by the way. Thousands of letters began to flood these politicians' offices. And 13 months after he was detained, Adriel was finally released. And he's now living with Pastor Abraham Abraham. And his family waiting for the completion of his asylum request before he can ever start working in the U.S. Now, I want to say this to you. I don't tell you this story to make a statement about immigration. You, You can work that out on your own. You should. You should be using your brains and your hearts and thinking through that. But I tell you that story because it's the story of a comeback. It's the story of someone who found himself knocked down. Can you imagine seeing a murder outside of your home that was meant for you? Someone who doesn't at any point say that he's seeking an explanation from God for the suffering in his life. Someone who had beauty all around him watching, saying, I have a pastor in the U.S. who's fighting for me. I have lawyers working on my behalf. I have an entire denomination rallying around me for the sake of my family. And by the way, as Adriel was sitting in that detention center, he never stopped fighting. He never gave up. He continued to pray. He continued to keep on in spite of the brokenness. You know what Job says at the end of his story? I'm going to invite the band to come as well. But you know what Job says at the end of his story? After he questions God for 37 chapters and God responds by questioning Job, watch what Job says in chapter 42. Job says this to God. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He says, you asked God, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And Job says this, surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, God, you said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then watch Job's conclusion. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. See, I had sat in the church. I knew the religion. I knew the faith that had been handed to me by my parents, but until life knocked me down and you showed up in the middle of me being knocked down, I didn't really know you, God. I hadn't really seen you. See, friends, the story of David's comeback is the story of grace in our lives. It's the story of a people who say, I've always had a Christian faith, or maybe I never believed in Christ, but I didn't know Jesus until he pulled me out and rescued me. I didn't recognize how intimate God cared about my life until I experienced it. He said, I have heard of you, but I hadn't seen you. And he goes on, he says, therefore I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. Now I know repentance means a lot of things. In the church, repentance too often has been, well, just say you're sorry to God and you won't go to hell. But I want you to understand something. The word repentance in Greek, repent, is the word metanoia. And it means to turn, to turn back, to return. I I told you the first week of the series, if you're going to fight for a comeback, if you're going to get up off the mat, if you're going to keep living, if you're going to choose to thrive in God's kingdom in spite of your failures, in spite of what's hit you, listen, I don't care if your comeback needs to come because you're sinful and broken or because life is hard and you've been broken down. None of that matters to me. I care that you get up off the mat. I care that you start to fight for a comeback. But if you're going to do that, you're going to have to repent. And I don't mean repent, say you're sorry, and move on. I say repent, return to who God created you to be. Begin to fight for your heart again. See, many of you need a comeback, and you're going to have to recapture your heart to go after that. I, and that's what the gospel's about. See, if you're here and you would say, I, I have not put my trust in Jesus, but, man, this is what I need. There's something about this. Here's the beauty of this moment. The scriptures say your comeback starts at the foot of the cross. and We're going to get there. I don't want to give my Easter sermon away. But your comeback starts when you stand at the foot of the cross and go, I can't do this anymore. But I see you. I see you, Jesus, on the cross. And Some of you just need to step into that. We call that crossing the line of faith here at New Community. You need to come to a place where you would say, I've never called myself a follower of Christ, but today I'm crossing that line of faith. And I'm going to pray for you in just a minute. But then there's those of you who are here who would just say, I do feel knocked down. I do feel like I've been punched out. I didn't see all this stuff, all the junk that was gonna hit my life, and I didn't I didn't know it was coming, and it's hard to even get out of bed. And I'm saying to you, today, what if you start to see the beauty? What if you start to realize God doesn't owe me an explanation? But there's beauty in this moment. What if it starts to look differently for you? What if your fight begins? Your getting up off the mat begins. Simply doing this, whatever you've been wrestling against, whatever you've been holding on to, whatever you've been, God, did you can't have this, God. I want you to explain this, God. This is, this is just, and it's all this stress, all this stuff that's, and it just starts with surrender. God, I don't know the answer, but I'm going to give it up to you. Today it's yours.